Good evening, everyone. Are there any curling fans in the house? Anybody? Yes, a few of us. We're probably more feeling much better this evening than you rugby fans, because Britain have made it into the semi-finals of the curling for the mixed doubles. Very exciting. I am a curling fan once every four years when the British team get into the semi-finals and the finals. The rest of the time, I'm not interested. Although somebody told me this morning that apparently you can do curling in, is it Blackburn or somewhere? There's, yeah, apparently there's a, there's a curling rink somewhere in the UK now. Anyway, we're continuing our series. We're returning to our series this evening on uh, the two great commandments. Who in, was, was anybody here last week uh, with James? Wasn't he a great breath of fresh air for us? Yeah, I hope you're still sort of allowing the, the Lord to minister to your hearts through what he was sharing. But we are returning to our series this week on uh, the two great commandments and uh, of uh, Jesus saying that uh, what matters most to God is that we love God with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength and that we're to love others as we love ourselves. So basically, Jesus is saying in, in that uh, summary is that life is all about love. Life is all about love. I hope you know that. And it doesn't actually matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, or whether you're a Myers-Briggs thinker or a Myers-Briggs feeler, or what number you are on the Enneagram, or what color you are on the personality wheel, or whether you are neurotypical or neurodiverse or whatever. Jesus says that life is all about love. And that means that... Uh, he is going to hold us accountable when we meet him in glory for how we have loved. I hope you know that. I hope you know that one day we are all going to stand before Jesus and give an account for the lives that we've lived, what we've done with the life that he's given us, what we've done with our resources and our gifts and everything that he's put into our hands. You know, I hope you've discovered that from your Bible. If you haven't, I hope that someone's told you. And if you haven't, I'm telling you because it would be irresponsible of me not to as one of your leaders here. Um, if any of you kind of want to think a bit more about that kind of stuff, there's a fantastic book that I would recommend to you called uh, Imagine Heaven. Don't know if anybody's read that. It's a, it's a book written by... Um, a chap who used to be a skeptic, John Burke, and he was an engineer, not that all engineers were skeptics, but in some of his research, so what he was interested in was, was, was people who had uh, near-death experiences. He became fascinated about the stories of those people that had clinically died for a period of time and then had been resuscitated back to life and had had some kind of afterlife experience uh, as they were clinically dead. And uh, he researched over a thousand stories over a period of 35 years and three years ago wrote this book called Imagine Heaven. And what he did was he, he pulled together the similarities of those a thousand experiences and explores them in the light of what the Bible has to say about the afterlife and everything else. And uh, it's, it's, I would highly recommend it. It's really, really interesting read, very thought-provoking about heaven um, and everything else. And if I can find it, I just wanted to read you. My phone's gone all over the place. Here we are. I'm going to read you just a little bit from a story of a chap called Howard Storm, one of the, uh, one of the stories that he, he quotes in the book. And uh, Howard was somebody who had one of these near-death experiences and talks about um, recognizing, as he had his out-of-body experience, uh, 
he recognized a load of angels standing around him as he uh, met Jesus. And Jesus was, was there as this beautiful, loving presence that was uh, so astonishing for him. And Jesus uh, invited him, as was common in, in so many of the other stories, to have a review, to, to stand beside him and have a review of his life. And Howard says this, there were these angels around us, I'm being held, and I'm now facing them with Jesus' arms still around me, holding me, hanging on to me. And they gave me, these angels, my life in review. Jesus uh, wanted me, Jesus wanted me there to play out in chronological order, the scenes of my life. I'm going to put my glasses on. I'll read it better. And these chronological scenes were from when I was born to the present, moment by moment. And as I looked at these scenes, the entire emphasis was on my interaction with other people. Of course, initially starting out with my mother and father, my sisters, my school, and, and my friends. And together, he, Jesus, and the angels watched scenes from my life unfold, many of which I'd forgotten. And then Howard goes on to describe that these were only, they were, it was not only the events themselves that he was shown, but the effects of these events on other people's lives and the thoughts of the people that were involved and the people with whom he'd interacted. And, and some of that obviously involved things that uh, Howard hadn't known about and hadn't expected would have taken place at the time. Then he goes on to say the whole emphasis was on people and not things. As my life progressed, my adolescence and then into adulthood, there were some instances where I'd, had, I'd won promotions, I'd won honours, I'd won awards, and they skipped them. And I said to Jesus, you're skipping the most important things in my life. This is what I lived for, to get myself the Kentucky Artist of the Year, the big banquet in my honour and a big cash prize and everything. And he said, that's not what we're here for you to see. That's not what's important. What I want you to see is how you treated other people. And it's a very common uh, experience that um, this guy, James Burke, who wrote this book, goes on to highlight that what Jesus wants to know about, what Jesus is passionate about, is exactly what he says in these two great commandments. How have we loved God and how have we loved others? So we're going to talk about friendship this evening. You know, friendship is one dimension of how we love our neighbor. You don't need me to tell, this, tell you this. We all need friends. We all love friends, don't we? We need friends. Someone once said that the first problem in the Garden of Eden was not sin, but aloneness. God said, didn't he? It's not good for man to be alone. And uh, we know that family is one of God's uh, primary answers, antidotes to loneliness, but also so are friends. You know, friends make life better, don't they? They make the bad times more bearable and the good times just better. You know, we need friends to pick us up, to encourage us, to share life with, to uh, have a laugh with. Someone who's going to love us kind of warts and all. You know, friends make life so much better. And do you know what? Friendship is God's idea, isn't it? Friendship is, is God's answer to it's not good for man to be alone. God loves friendship. Abraham was his friend. Moses was his friend. Jesus says, I've come and I call you friends. Uh, the Bible is built around, actually, the notion of friendship. Jesus built his church with his friends and on the basis of friendship. Friendship is God's idea. The problem is, and you don't need me to tell you this, 
that true friendship, the kind of kingdom friendship that Jesus is after, has become, I think, harder and harder to find in our culture. You know, I know that if we were to go on our Facebook pages, if you were to look at your Facebook page tonight, you would discover that, or you would remind yourself that you have loads of friends. You know, we all have lots of friends, don't we, on Facebook. But having friends to do life with, having friends that will, you know, love us warts and all, having a friend, you know, who's there and who will check in on you and, and is interested in the different dimensions of your life, well, those are further and fewer between. And we are told, if we read the surveys and believe them, that are being done uh, at the moment increasingly, that loneliness is, loneliness is a huge epidemic in our culture. We have more friends than ever online, and we have fewer friends than ever if those surveys are to be believed in practice. Maybe that's your experience. Shakespeare said this, words are easy like the wind, faithful friends are hard to find. Don't know whether you'd agree with him, don't know whether that's your experience. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We all need friends and we all want friends. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't give us permission to kind of rifle through our friendship, kind of rust, uh, our, you know, the, our list of friends in our heads and think about those friends that actually haven't been the friends that they promised to be to us or who've let us down or wound us or whatever. He doesn't give us permission to, uh, or he doesn't give us advice about how to go looking for friends, the kind of friends that we, we want or we long for or whatever. He tells us to be the friend that we would love to have. His tips and his commands and his advice and his word are about how to be the kind of friend that we would want to have. And uh, I don't know about you, but I think it can be so easy to end up focusing on, you know, where friendships have gone wrong or the person who hasn't done this for me or the friend that let me down in this area. And those are very real sources of wounds and pain. And I believe, you know, God wants to do some, some things in that kind of area later on this evening. But Jesus encourage us to, encourages us to think about and to focus on what kind of friend am I to other people? What kind of friend are you? to other people, to the world around you. Or as uh, Ralph, Amos, uh, uh, sorry, Ralph Waldo Emerson, an American philosopher, uh, said this, if you want to have a friend, be a good friend. The only way to have a good friend is to be a good friend. And he's illustrating Jesus' principle. Actually, in giving, we receive. The way into friendship is to be a good friend. And Jesus' advice and his counsel is how to do that. So let's dive into the Bible. If you've got your Bible, we're going to read a story from 1 Samuel 30, which is a story in the Old Testament about uh, David and Jonathan. David, uh, if you remember, is the guy who killed Goliath with a stone. An epic warrior, mighty man of God. And he was the chap that um, uh, the prophet Saul anointed to take over as king from the previous king, Saul, who turned his back on the Lord and uh, hadn't been obedient to him. And so God decided, right, my people are going to have another king. And Saul had a son called Jonathan. And Jonathan should have been the rightful heir to the throne. 
uh, the throne, thrones were passed down through families, but God decided to take away the throne from Saul and uh, decided that his sons weren't going to inherit the throne and anointed David. But there was a period of time between Saul dying and the throne passing to David where David was on the run from Saul because Saul was jealous of uh, David and the favor of God that was upon him. And yet... Uh, David's uh, best friend ended up being Jonathan, Saul's son, which in itself is something pretty amazing because Jonathan was the rightful king inheritance-wise and yet David was the one who uh, God had decided to give the throne to. So this story happens in 1 Samuel 20 uh, where David and Jonathan are kind of hatching a plan because David is in dire need because Saul is trying to kill him and he summons uh, Jonathan for help. So I'm just going to read it. I'm going to skip through some of the verses, but if you've got your Bible open. We've got David fleeing from Naoth in Ramah, and he found Jonathan. What have I done, he exclaimed. What is my crime? How have I offended your father Saul that he is so determined to kill me? So Saul is trying to kill David. That's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. So David took an oath before Jonathan and said, your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I swear to you that I'm only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed. Notice he didn't sort of rebuke David's words and think, well, my dad, he's my dad, he's amazing, he's not capable of that, that kind of thing. He says, tell me what I can do to help you. David replied, tomorrow we'll celebrate the new moon festival. I've always eaten with the king on this occasion, but tomorrow I'm going to hide in the field and I'll stay there until the third day. And then uh, if your father asks where I am, make up this story, tell him I've gone to Bethlehem, you know, tell him and it, look at his reaction. If he's angry... Uh, and loses his temper, you'll know that he's determined to kill me. That will be the sign that he wants to kill me. Show me this loyalty as my sworn friend, Jonathan, because we made a solemn pact before the Lord. There he is talking again about this bond of friendship that they've got. Or kill me yourself if I've sinned against your father, but please don't betray me to him. No way, Jonathan exclaimed. You know that if I had the slightest notion my father was planning to kill you, I'd tell you at once. So David says, how will I know whether you're father or not is angry come out to the field with me Jonathan replied and they went out there and then Jonathan uh, sets up this sort of plan and basically says go out to the field and go and hide over there and wait for me and then if I, I'll fire some arrows and depending on what I say to my servant you'll either know that your dad is going to kill you, my dad wants to kill you uh, or he doesn't and then skipping to verse 16 so Jonathan made a solemn pact with David saying may the Lord destroy all your enemies and Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again. And then skipping on to the, towards the end of the chapter, uh, jo uh, Jonathan goes and has this meal with Saul. And on the first night, Saul doesn't, uh, knows that David isn't, he doesn't comment on the fact that David isn't there. And then the next night, he, he says, where on earth is, is David? And Jonathan tells him this story, makes made up story. Oh, he's not here for this reason. And then in verse 30, Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore. He swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. But why should he be put to death? Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? And then Saul hurled his spirit, Jonathan, intending to kill him. 
So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was determined to kill David. And then right at the end, when he's found out uh, from this sort of firing of the arrows that Jonathan said he would give his message, Jonathan comes out of hiding, David comes out of hiding. Right at the end, David bowed down three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye because David's got to go on the run. Finally, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we've sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. David left and Jonathan returned to the town. Now, I know it's a bit of a long story, but it's really important to root some of the things that we talk about, you know, in terms of principles of relationship and friendship in the Word of God. And this is one of the the most epic friendships in the Bible. Current, you know, there's some sort of moves in current culture to suggest that this was more than a friendship. It was some kind of physical relationship. You know, come and talk to myself or Tim or Andrew later if you want to explore that a bit more. But do you know what? That's just people bringing current 21st century lenses to a culture that was very different in biblical times. This is an epic story of a friendship between David and Jonathan. And I want to just pull out four headlines from it about how we can uh, be the friend that Jesus has invited us to be to the people around us, to the world around us. Uh, Four headlines from this story that you might want to sort of ask yourself as we go through them, what kind of friend am I? So I've called this uh, talk this evening, um, Am I a Friend or a Flake? And I'm going to give you four headlines. And and imagine the scale from sort of one to ten. And you might want to kind of estimate, well, where am am I on this scale of friend or flake? You know, you might want to talk about it in the pub with your friends afterwards and ask them to ask you, you know, or tell you where they think you are along this scale. But a little checklist of four things that the Bible talks about as being absolutely foundational to friendship that we find in this story. And the first one is this. Am I a giver or a taker? Am I a giver or a taker? Friends are givers, flakes are takers. So question, do you find it easier to think about what what friends, what the people around you haven't done for you, the way they haven't reached out for you or haven't encouraged you or haven't done this or haven't done that? Or do you pay more attention to how you're giving and blessing and what kind of friend you are being to other people? Are you a kind of go the extra mile person or are you kind of count the cost, tit for tat, you know, I did this for them, they haven't done it for me kind of a friend? This story is a story, you know, this chapter is all about Jonathan giving, 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 isn't it? He's there for David. He's putting his life at risk, going to speak to his dad about David and find out uh, what his plans are. It's David, risk, uh, Jonathan Uh, you know, risking his life to help his friend, you know, giving up his time, giving up his energy, giving up his resources, offering to help, uh, look out for his friend and do what true friends do. True friends are givers, not takers. Are you a fountain or a drain? You know, think about fountains, they come up through the the earth, don't they? And, well, you know, homemade, not homemade, Structured fountains, architecturally made fountains, rather than geysers. They come up through the ground, don't they? And water flows everywhere continually. Drains, the water disappears through it. Friends are givers, not takers. What are you? Are you the one that makes the calls? Are you the one that sends the messages? Are you the one that kind of initiates putting a date in the diary, inviting someone around to your house, making the effort? 
taking the initiative. Friendship grows in the soil of kindness, doesn't it? And kindness is about giving. Kindness isn't about counting the cost. Kindness is about giving. If I'm only ever kind to the friends or the people that are kind to me, really, I'm just being polite and repaying a favour. Friends are givers, not takers. Proverbs 19 Verse 6 says this, everyone is the friend of one who gives gifts. Well, there are all kinds of ways of giving gifts, giving our time, giving our attention, giving our resources, giving, you know, whatever. Are you a giver or are you a taker? Secondly, are you solid or are you fluid? Are you solid or are you fluid? We all have friends that we talk to online, in the pub. Whatever. About the last thing we've seen on Netflix, about what we thought about the British curling team, how England played, or what we think about the latest thing that Boris has done. We all have people that we can talk to. But quality friends are not just people that we talk to. They're people that we trust, aren't they? People that we maybe share the deeper stuff with. Friendship is built on the foundation of trust. And trust comes from reliability. We've got a, a big medical centre up the road uh, where we are. And if they'd built, tried to build the medical centre when the cement was wet and it was changing shape as they put weight on it, the whole thing would have been a disaster. So the cement had to go hard in order for that building to be able to stand firm. Trustworthy friends, they are reliable. They are, de they are dependable. They are predictable in one sense. They're like concrete, not like wet cement. Proverbs 20, again, there's so much wisdom for life in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says this, Many will say they are loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly reliable? That's that guy, Ralph Waldo Emerson, in the Bible. What does this look like? Are you available when somebody needs your help? Are you willing to be inconvenienced by your friends? Are you somebody whose word is good? You know, if you say you'll do something, do you show up? Or are you somebody who kind of cancels at the last moment? Are you somebody who's true to your word? Or are you somebody who actually changes your word or changes your commitments depending on what happens in your life at the kind of last minute or how you feel or whatever? And what about the way you speak about the people around you. If I speak about my friends and I say one thing to their face and another thing behind my back, I'm, behind their back, I'm being fluid. I'm changing, you know, I'm changing what I say about them, depending on whether they, they know what I'm saying or, know, or they don't know what I'm saying. Proverbs 16, verse 28. Here's another brilliant verse from the Bible. A troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. Well, gossip is really just talking about people behind their backs, isn't it? A friend is somebody who's got my back, not somebody who stabs me in the back. Are you solid or are you fluid in the way you talk about others? Because actually, if, it, it doesn't matter who we're talking about. If that's a practice that we're inconsistent in the way that we talk about people, we're likely to be like that about our friends. Biblical kingdom. Jesus' kind of friends are people who are solid, not fluid. Thirdly, am I open or am I closed? Imagine a door. You know, an open door lets, lets in people and lets people out, doesn't it? 
Friendship is about connection. Friendship is about connection. David and Jonathan, there's connection here. There's real connection. They're sharing the kind of most um, challenging of life circumstances with each other. David's sharing his, his feelings, his fears, and, David is, and, and Jonathan is there for him you know, in that moment of absolute vulnerability and need. Am I open or am I closed? Do I let people into my life? Do I let people see what's going on in my life so that they can truly get to know me? Do I share my fears? Do I share my struggles? Do I share what I'm wrestling with? Am I honest about that kind of stuff? Or are my relationships basically made up of surface conversations? They're important. Having a laugh with people, so important. It's all part of friendship. But do they go deeper than that? Do people know what's really going on behind my mask? If I'm open... I I make room for people to come into my life and to come into my heart. And if I'm closed, I keep them at arm's distance and friendship becomes a bit more challenging. And of course, I recognise that that's easier to do than to say. But actually, I wonder if we can all take a step. You know, there's a step for us all in moving forward with this, isn't there? Wherever we are on that scale. Am I open or am I closed? And am I open to others? How open am I to getting to know other people, to getting to know what's behind, you know, their masks or whatever? How much do I want to know other people and how much do I just want to hang out alongside them? Knowing a bit about their history, knowing about their struggles, knowing about their challenges, knowing about what's going on in their lives, what makes them tick, what makes them them. Some of us are brilliant at talking. I've known people who are brilliant at, you know, they... They start talking and they're great at sharing their stuff and uh, great at telling you know, me about their past experiences, about their struggles, about their life or whatever. But actually they're not interested in knowing anything about anybody else. Well, that makes friendship very challenging. And then I've known people who are brilliant at asking questions and showing an interest and being uh, curious and wanting to know me much better. But then when I try and get to know them as a friend, the wall goes up and they remain closed. So again, it becomes very difficult to do friendship. Are you open, not closed? If we're open as friends, then we're open to both. Open to sharing our own lives, open to welcoming people into our lives, but also open to knowing others and to getting to know them well. And then fourthly, are you a gritter or a quitter? Final question, are you a gritter or a quitter? Every true friendship... Every true friendship will be tested by time and trouble. Any true friendship that goes the distance is going to be challenged as time passes and it's going to be challenged by difficulty, by challenge, by competition, whatever. And David and Jonathan's relationship was no different. There's Jonathan, loving, protecting, going after, being a true friend to the guy who was inheriting in one sense, although God had, uh, had commanded it, his throne. I wonder how much kind of jealousy he had to overcome. I wonder what kind of challenges he had to deal with in his own heart in order for that friendship to continue. But, uh, Proverbs 27 verse 10 says, Never abandon a friend, either yours or your father's. I wonder why it says that. Probably because we're tempted to to press the exit button on friendships at different points in time. True friends are gritters, not quitters. Look at the trouble in verse 33 for Jonathan. Saul throws his spear at him. 
I mean, how easy would it have been for him in that moment to decide this is too much being David's friend? Look at the trouble it's causing in my family. Friends are committed to each other's well-being. If I'm going to be a good friend, I've got to be committed to your well-being, which means persevering when things are tough. And being a gritter, being a gritter not a quitter, also means having the grit to be honest in a relationship. This is a ruthlessly honest conversation, isn't it, between Jonathan and David? Really tough stuff. Your dad wants to kill me. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. Go and find out from him. Okay, I'll go and find out from him and put myself in danger. And then he comes back and he says to Jonathan, yes, it's true. He wants to kill you. I wonder what you would have done. Would you have told the truth, tough as it was? Would you have been honest? Or would you have smoothed it over because it was a bit easier, maybe for you or for the friendship? Proverbs 27 verse 6 says this, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I wonder if you've known wounds that have been healing from a friend or whether you're the kind of friend that dares speak the truth in love in order to bless another friend. I love this. Oscar Wilde says, true friends stab you in the front. <laughs> Better to be stabbed in the front from a friend than stabbed in the back, I think, by a friend. And the other thing, friends, about friendship, I know I'm touching on lots of different things here, and I know we'll unpack some more of this a bit next week, but it takes grit in friendship because friendship requires forgiveness. How many of us have been let down by friends? I imagine that's most of us here. I've watched too many friendships disintegrate over time because one friend, one party to the relationship has got stuck in unforgiveness, who has been unable to get over a wound or an offence or whatever that has been uh, caused to them. And I think Jonathan probably had every reason to... Uh, you know, struggle with this friendship with David because of the complexities in their, um, you know, in the, in the family connection, as it were. Some of the people that are closest to me in my life, some of the friendships that I would consider to be my closest, are not people that haven't hurt me and haven't wounded me. We're not close because we've been so similar or we're so connected or it's been so smooth that actually nothing's come along. The reason we're close is because we've both had to forgive each other and because we've worked at forgiveness, we have remained and got closer as we've gone along. The people that have the power to wound us most, aren't they, are the people that we allow into our lives. The people that we, you know, when we're open with them, we, they have access to our hearts and therefore they have the power to hurt us. But actually friendship requires us to be willing to have the grit to forgive because otherwise we just move from one friend to another friend to another friend and actually never know the lasting benefit of the kind of friendship that Jesus wants us to experience in this life. Proverbs 17 verse 17 says this, Friends love through all kinds of weather. And in verse 19 it says this, Love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. I wonder where you are on the spectrum of being a good friend. Where could you take some steps? Where could you think about? Where does God want to encourage you to think about taking some steps towards being a better friend? What can you do 
to become a better friend to those people around you, to the people that God has put in your life. Yes, great friendships and mutual friendships. But God invites us and asks us to love our neighbours as ourselves, And we can be friends. We can be good friends to the people around us. We can be gritters, not quitters. We can be solid, not fluid. We can be open, not closed. We can be givers, not takers in some way to all of the people that God puts around us. Think about Jesus. Think about Jesus as you look at that list. He fulfilled, didn't he, every one of these criteria to an off-the-scale level on the spectrum. He gave his life. He gave everything he could. He gave his life so that I could be his friend. He, was, he is so solid. He is unchanging. He is the rock. His love for you never changes. He never changes what he thinks about you. He never changes how he feels about you no matter what kind of day you are having. He's open. He's totally open to you every day of your life. His arms are open. His heart is open. The kingdom is open. His promises are open. His love is there for you every day of your life. You will never find a closed door with Jesus. And he's a gritter. He's a gritter, not a quitter. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's his promise to each one of us because he is the best friend that we could ever have. Friend of sinners, friend of mine, friend of yours. But here's the thing. Jesus offers us his friendship, but he also offers us, as we walk with him as his friends, the invitation to become friends like him to those around us. I know two young adults uh, in the morning congregation who've just become parents, and I was talking to them uh, a couple of weeks ago, separately, uh, throughout uh, different points in the week. And both of them became Christians because they were attracted to a bunch of Christian friends at university, and they saw something completely different in the way the Christian people did friendship with each other. They were invited into those friendship groups and ended up finding the Lord and deciding to follow him as a result. Friends, it's a high calling. But Jesus calls us to be true friends to those around us because he offers us his spirit to empower us to be the kind of friends that he is to us. Are you up for it? Let's stand. <laughs>